Khan Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. Hello, my name is Emma McIntyre. I'm a partner in the property litigation team at Mishkondorea. I'm joined today by Isabel Lee, an associate in the team, and David Boyne, a telecom surveyor, for the first of two podcasts relating to the Electronic Communications Code. Together, we are going to discuss the rights of telecoms operators to install their equipment on any land or buildings, and the steps that can be taken by the owners or occupiers of such land or buildings. First, let's recap on the code. What is it? There has, for a long time, been legislation in place which allows telecoms providers to be able to place their equipment on sites which are outside their ownership. The policy reason behind that is to allow coverage for telecommunications over as wide an area as possible, and that operators are not prevented from putting their equipment on sites to provide that coverage. The code regulates the legal relationships between landowners and registered telecommunications providers, operators. It gives the operators the right to install or to keep apparatus on land after contractual rights have been terminated, and those are known as code rights. There was previously a code in place, and had been for some time, but that was changed in 2017 so that there were new rules and a new code. The old code doesn't apply anymore, although there are some transitional provisions. And in this podcast, we're going to be focusing on that new code. The code provides security of tenure to the operators. And under the new code, the 1954 Act, which governs the security of tenure for business tenancies, does not apply to any agreements. In this podcast, we're going to be talking at times about site providers. The site provider is the occupier who could be the landowner, landlord of a property or a tenant. And it's the site provider who can provide and grant the code rights. I'm going to now talk to Isabel and David about the powers and rights available to the operators. So, Isabel, what are the first steps that an operator is going to take if they want to or think that they might want to go onto land or a building to install their equipment? So the first thing an operator needs to do is establish whether the site in question is suitable for the installation of equipment. To do that, they will undertake a survey and um, the survey then tells them whether this site connects with its other sites that it has in the area or whether there's any kind of elevation issues that would interfere with signal. Ordinarily, the landowner of that site would receive a letter from the operator giving notice that they want to come onto the site. And if that letter is ignored or no response is received, then there will be further letters. There is a code of practice that supplements the code that requires a landowner to provide access within a reasonable time of request and also to respond to any such requests. Although the code of practice isn't binding, should the case go to the tribunal, then the tribunal might take the party's behaviour in complying or not complying with the code into account, particularly when considering costs. And when you say landowner, Is that a freehold owner of land, 
a tenant? What, who, who is the person that would receive a letter or any kind of notice? So code rights can only be granted by the occupier of land. Um, therefore, if a tenant is in occupation and the operator wants to bind both the landlord and the tenant, then it either needs to enter into two agreements, one with each party, or it needs to enter into a tripartite agreement that covers both. The definition of occupier is actually um, the subject of a case called Compton Beecham that is being appealed to the Supreme Court. And we expect a decision on that in the coming months. But for now, that is the position. So an occupier landowner receives a notice, can they refuse access um, for a survey? So access to survey is a code right, which means that if access is refused, the operator can apply to the tribunal to force access by requiring the landowner to grant um, what's called an interim rights agreement, an agreement allowing it to go onto the site to survey. The test that the tribunal will apply is whether the exercise of the code right is compensatable in money and whether the public interest in having access to good telecommunications signal outweighs the interest of the particular landowner. If the landowner or occupier refuses to engage, it's therefore likely that the operator will make an application to the tribunal and the hearing could be dealt with quite quickly, as quickly as six weeks. And the operator will seek to claim costs from the landowner. Um, Costs can be quite substantial, in some cases in excess of £20,000, although the tribunal has recently been quite critical of parties incurring too many costs and has limited recoverability. When it comes to survey, it's very likely that the tribunal will grant access because the survey doesn't necessarily reveal that the site's suitable it's just to establish whether there's a potential that it could be and presumably the disruption from a survey is 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 very different from a permanent right that's correct the i mean the survey does not mean that it's a foregone conclusion that kits actually going to be installed it's basically a scoping exercise to see if there is the potential there Okay, um, David, uh, how can a surveyor assist in this? Uh, In the first instance, the initial letter requesting access will usually suggest to a building owner or a a tenant of a building that it obtains professional advice. And it's really, really important that this is done. A number of landowners will actually try to do these things themselves and get themselves into a bit of a twist. In the background, the operator's agent will have carried out a detailed assessment of the suitability of the site or the roof, and therefore they've got a lot of information at the outset as to how they're going to deal with it. It's important to ensure that any agreement is properly documented and contains the right terms. This is because if the parties simply enter into an informal written agreement, allowing the operator to access the property, the operator may be able to argue that permanent code rights have been created. Now, in the initial survey, the letter will say, we're just coming to have a quick look. In the background, it won't be an initial quick look. It will actually be something that's called a, an MSV or a multi-skilled visit. And this is a detailed design, um, well, it's a detailed design consideration used to prepare the planning documents. It will consider antenna locations, feeder routes, 
the location of cabinets and other equipment, access routes, crane locations, power and fibre routes. This is all done by the operator's agents, but it's really, really important that a landowner or a tenant has someone representing them to understand the initial considerations that are being made in order to prepare a route to consider as to whether it's going to be a major, major problem or whether it is going to be acceptable from that side. Now, uh, the MSV would normally be documented, and our recommendation is that it's documented by way of an interim rights agreement. The terms uh, for an MSV, the legal terms and, and the written terms, uh, are actually, over the past three years, have now been standardised between landlords or professionally advised landlords and the operators themselves. And predominantly, it's access to inspect, but it's a time-limited access to inspect. Um, a telecom surveyor can have the discussions about this and agree the terms on behalf of the landowner occupier. Is it something that can be done jointly with the landowner or the occupier? The operators themselves historically over the past 30 years have encouraged the landowner's agents to be involved in these MSVs in order for them to highlight areas that where works may be proposed to be carried out by a building owner in a year's time, two years' time, adding air conditioning, adding solar panelling, etc., etc. Under the new code, the operators really don't want the interference in what they term as interference of landlords' agents, stopping them from doing what they want to do and designing the perfect site, notwithstanding the fact that that may interrupt a building's owner's occupation or uh, beneficial enjoyment of the roof of the property or his site. Therefore, they will discourage an agent acting on behalf of a landlord to attend. In our opinion, it is essential that they attend and are there at the same at, at the same time. The operator will not pay for that attendance, but it's really, really important for a building owner to understand what the operator is seeking to achieve in order to minimise the impact to their building. And is there any reason why um, the owner of a building or occupier of a building can't actually carry out its own survey for suitability, especially if it's got a number of buildings in, a, in the same area to see whether they, they can think about whether there are particular buildings that might be better suited from either their point of view or indeed from an operator's point of view? Again, it's, it's essential that that's considered by a building owner at the date the application to access their buildings are, are made. The building owner will have a detailed knowledge about what their plans are for the building, what other ownerships they have, um, whether they're about to lease out a roof to a drone landing company or do other works on the, on the roof. They've got this absolute knowledge, which the agents who act on behalf of the operators have no view upon. Their focus is to install equipment on the roof of the property. Their instruction is to install it as in the cheapest possible form, as quickly as possible, et cetera, et cetera. And if they don't have this information or a building owner doesn't understand this consideration, then there becomes a problem. And that then leads to litigation or it leads to a difference of opinion between a landlord and an operator. So it's absolutely essential that a building owner considers some of these wider things to understand how the impact to his building or his suite of buildings, adjacent buildings, 
with regard that some of them which may be proposed to be redeveloped or increased in height or additional equipment being brought in. So it's really, really important that they do this. And Isabel, I mean, is, if they were to do that, is that something that would be taken into account by a tribunal in any application that was made before it? Definitely. The, the party's views on what should happen will obviously be considered by the tribunal. And also uh, the tribunal will have regard to the party's conduct. So if if a landowner has offered an alternative roof or has, has tried to cooperate to find an alternative solution that works for both parties, then that will definitely be taken into account on the question of costs. Okay, thank you. Moving on, once the survey has been carried out, is that the end of the matter? I mean, is that the end of the procedure? Is the operator just simply allowed to go on if they think that the site is suitable for their equipment? The answer to that is no. Um, the operator has no automatic right to install. But again, the installation of kit is a code right. So if the landowner refuses to give access, then the operator can apply to the tribunal to force access. Um, And if the operator is successful, then again, it will seek costs, which can be more substantial than um, they can for interim rights. So in a recent case, it was in excess of £500,000. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the tribunal will allow full recovery, but um, it is something that landowners have to bear in mind. But will the operator definitely obtain an order um, or can the landowner occupier take steps to try and prevent the equipment being installed? David, are there any practical steps that would be taken by the operator before it reaches the stage where a tribunal application is being made? Emma, we need to distinguish between the original survey. In the first instance, with regards to the original survey, they're allowed to do this. They're allowed to technically design any scheme that's there. It's really, really important for the site provider, building owner, tenant to understand the implications with regards to that. The detail that they're taking under the survey will be to put in place planning design drawings, which they will then, as soon as they're ready and a lot of the cases at the present time, without reference back to the building owner, they will make a planning application to the local planning authority. And therefore, those drawings need to be looked at as soon as they're available in order to understand the impacts that are there. And representations can be made by a building owner, tenant, landlord of a building to the local planning authority. Again, historically, 50% of planning applications made by operators Uh, would fail a planning permission. The planning permission regime has now been loosened by government legislation to promote the local planning authorities to allow planning to, uh, to be granted. But it's really, really important that any major concerns or any concerns at all that are made are made to the local planning authority if the scheme does not fit the purpose and reduce costs and the future occupation of the building. Planning, therefore, is a, is a sort of first stage that would give a landowner occupier an opportunity to make representations separate to any opposition grounds that they may have under the code. But it gives that first, uh, a sort of separate and first step that they can take. Uh, it's really a second step because if the survey is carried out jointly with the building owner's representative, 
he will be making representations at that point in time to say, you can't put your equipment here because there are plans to put new air conditioning in or there are other issues, whatever it may be. And these need to be documented um, so that if an operator ignores those uh, representations at the survey, this, should it go to tribunal, can be brought out at that time to say, you were aware of this and therefore you didn't take account of it. We're not really happy. So we're now in a situation where the survey's been done, planning applications been made, planning permissions been received. Isabel, what are the steps that now need to be taken by an operator? If an application were to be made to the tribunal, what would it need to take into account? And what reasons can a landlord occupier have to object? So if the operator makes an application, a landowner can put forward um, reasons why the application should not be granted. An example could be that the prejudice caused by the exercise of the code right, i.e. allowing installation of the kit, cannot be compensated in money. There was a case called the University of the Arts where a landowner was redeveloping and successfully resisted the imposition of a code agreement on the basis that it would not be able to give vacant possession in accordance with the contract it had entered into with the developer. And the upper tribunal accepted that the prejudice caused by the risk of litigation, both with the developer and Cornerstone, who was the operator in that case, and the resulting stress and uncertainty to uh, the University of the Arts and its employees in combination with the potential reputational damage of litigation, just could not be compensated in money. And therefore, the redevelopment plans were sufficient reason not to grant a permanent agreement. There could also be practical considerations why the kit can't be installed. There might be solar panels or or a drone landing site or storage or another use of the proposed site, um, which David also just mentioned, if, there, if there's air conditioning that will be installed, then you can bring those to the tribunal's attention. But in a large number of cases, you may well find that as a landowner or occupier, the operator is able to obtain an order. If there is no ground for refusing it, um, or indeed, if the landowner occupier is prepared to agree. David, what kind of terms are included in an agreement? In the first instance, the operators are sending out generic standard terms right across the industry, uh, and they're sending these out at a very early stage to a landlord. They are exceptionally operator-friendly, In general terms, they do not reflect the individuality of any particular building or occupation or a landlord's um, future consideration. So the terms are standard and generic and, from a landowner's point of view, are very, very hard. As an example, the term is typically demanded, requested, uh, as 15 years without break, and in a lot of circumstances, especially central London with tower cranes going up, a landlord may have a consideration that in five years, 10 years' time, there is to be a redevelopment of the building. And therefore, it's absolutely essential that this is considered at day one before any agreement is is, is written. Because if a an agreement is for 15 years without a landlord's break clause, then 
That's it. It's 15 years, and they cannot redevelop that building for that period of time. So these, there's a lot of minutiae in there. 24-7 access is, is, is another request and demand from the operators uh, without control. The circumstances, for argument's sake, of an operator putting equipment on a school building will need to be controlled very carefully with regards to, for example, safeguarding, because you can't just allow people onto a site because it breaks the legislation in connection with the operation and running of things like schools. The valuation is something that needs to be considered and the compensation as well. The consideration rents, as you'd have it, uh, is much lower than the old code. Typically, it's now an offer of between £1,000 and £5,000 per annum, as opposed to historic rents of between £10,000 and £40,000 per annum. There is a, another part, which is compensation, which needs to be thought about very, very carefully. It's all supposed to be cost neutral under the government legislation to a landlord. And in general terms, the operators wish to reduce down their outgoing costs, uh, annualised cost, in addition to rent, to as low as possible. And therefore, there will be discussions that will need to be had with regards to the actual costs from that side. There may also be other terms, depending on the landowner's occupier's long-term plans, uh, which include break rights, lift and shift clauses, uh, but these will be touched upon in the, in the next uh, podcast. Again, within the, any agreements prior to occupation, um, the operators will seek to put in place consensual terms uh, and suggest that these are consensual terms, um, but they're really hard with regards to the negotiation of what they will accept and what they will not accept. It's exceptionally important to consider the minutiae of the details of any agreement because it's what's not written that will come back and bite a building owner in the future. And Isabel, is there anything else that generally landowners or occupiers should be aware of? Yes, so the, the unwritten terms that David is referring to, for example, there's an automatic right for operators to assign, upgrade and share their equipment under the new code. So historically, the agreements would limit, say, the amount of equipment or the size of the equipment and also um, specify that operators couldn't share with other operators or could only share to a limited extent. and that is prevented by the new code and the other thing obviously as we've already touched upon is the the code does grant security of tenure or a form of it which means that um, in order to get rid of the operators it's not just enough to terminate the agreement you have to go through the procedure that is specified by the code Um, but we will talk about that in more detail in our second podcast Well, I think that brings an end to the discussion on the rights of operators to put their equipment on land. Uh, If you have any queries or you'd like advice, then you'll be able to find our details on our website at www.mishcon.com. Please do join us for our next podcast, in which we will cover the grounds for removing a telecoms operator from a site, in particular when the landowner wishes to develop its site. Meanwhile, thank you for listening. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com.